absolute chaos and zero fucks to give. Um, as I clearly witnessed recently. <laughs> so I go in, it's after work. I want a Subway sandwich. It's right next to my house. The guy who usually works there, he's like always there at the same time. I always get a sandwich at the same time. So I like know him. He's very nice. He changes his gloves all the time, which I appreciate. You know what's the worst is when they're like handling the money and then they go back to finish your sandwich. And I'm like, I appreciate that you tried to make this transaction quicker because you didn't wait until my full sandwich was assembled and then make me pay. You know what I mean? But like, that's disgusting and I hate it. Especially yep. like we're in a pandemic. Uh, yeah, anyways, yeah, yeah. so I walk in. There's another person in there, which never happens. So I'm like very far back. And this guy's standing like right at the till. The guy's like doing a sandwich. And it's like tense in there. And I'm like, cool. Wonder what this is about. <laughs> and then <laughs> it escalated so quickly. The guy who's standing there is clearly trying to explain something like about his gripe, basically. And it's, I, I don't, I don't know what the issue was, but it was something about some sort of an app. So like either like a delivery, like an Uber Eats, a skip or something like that. Or like does Subway have an app to order ahead or something? Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> something about the kind of cheese that was used. He kept saying, this is what the real cheddar looks like. Like he'd pulled up a page on Subway's website and was like, this is it, bitch. Oh, I um, thought you were going to say he pulled up just like a generic like stock photo of cheddar. But <laughs> no, that I mean, honestly, he could have. I don't really know it was on his phone. But like the vibe I got was that it was like official Subway information. <laughs> um and then there was clearly something that had gone wrong with the other sandwich too because he had two sandwiches so that's all happening and then the guy who's making the sandwiches and like i will say as someone who like always wants to stick up for the customer service or the person working in the establishment i never want to take the guest side ever because i've been (laughs) yelled at too many times but this guy's being very polite and he's saying it in a way where he's trying to explain like hey just like pass this along to someone i think there's maybe an issue with the app but he's also clearly frustrated But the other hilarious bit of it too is he's just like, maybe just tell the people who did the app. And in my head, I'm thinking, you think this motherfucker over here has any control or contact with the people who are doing the app for Subway? My mind is blown. (laughs) The next thing you know, the guy who makes the sandwiches is screaming at this guest. Like fully fucking screaming. I'm sorry, I'm swearing so much, but like the energy was so chaotic. He's screaming at him. He's like, fuck you, get out, you're wrong. Like, literally, those were things that were said. That's not an exaggeration. And I'm standing there the whole time. This is like five minutes that this is going on. I'm like, should I leave? I really want my sandwich. But. Wait, so was this all happening before you got in? Or like, after you'd already been like, half So clearly, helped? the like, oh, I hadn't been helped at all by the oh, time okay. this happened. Because no, so I, I would have just left. I would have like, turned and run. I really wanted my sandwich, though. I was really hungry. You know I love me a Subway. Um, I haven't had a Subway in years. Okay, well, you're missing out. I know it's trash. I know it's trash. No. But it's delicious trash. Yeah. Anyways, so I could have very well left. Like, I had not been helped at any point. You could tell when you walked in that the the vibe was not good. But I needed my sandwich. (laughs) And then the worst part of this entire fucking interaction, though, is that the guy, the customer leaves. He, like, walks out and is like, oh, and like, like grumbling on his way. And I'm like, okay, whatever. Like clearly a grumble is required. This was an insane situation. (laughs) And then the guy working there did that thing that I cannot stand where he's like, this guy, like, listen to what he did. And I'm like, I do not need to get involved with this situation at all. And then he goes, you were the one who yelled, sir. Yeah. I mean, the other guy did like raise his voice, but he wasn't screaming profanities at him. uh anyways and then he goes oh yeah so telling an herbs and cheese with roast beef right and i'm like oh god so the real tragedy of this story is the fact that i go to subway that much that the guy knows what i want 
I mean, that is shocking. I don't think I've ever known someone who goes to sub. Ah, that's not true. I went to high school with a guy who would always get a meatball sub. I don't like any of the meatball subs. Roast beef all the way, girl. Or like the people who get like the um, teriyaki chicken. And I'm like, that's gross. Why? Yeah, I don't no. want any of those like warm, saucy meats. I just want my cold cuts. I mean, I don't want a cold cut sub. That's like a thing, I think. But yes. I want my roast beef. Do you get this heated? I feel like we've had this discussion. Yeah, yeah of course. Cheese heated, lettuce, tomato, pickles, honey mustard, done. I only want a cold sandwich. Really? Unless it's a grilled cheese or a panini, but that doesn't count. I think paninis are for bitches. <laughs> we have 4,000% have had this exact conversation. Yeah, but also okay. I've told you numerous times that it's the texture of the bread that hurts my mouth. <laughs> I've been stabbed by paninis. Yeah. Why do you want a food that hurts you like that? You should. I want melted cheese and roasted vegetables. That's true. I kind of here's the thing: the real, true, best answer is that you just have warm bread, like always, like fresh out of the oven. True, but true. we can't always have that. No, and we are actually not talking about bread this episode. Although that may perhaps be something in the future. Ooh. But today on Pantry Staples Pod, welcome to Pantry Staples, everybody. It's the podcast where we dish on your favorite foods. This is the first episode of season two. Extremely exciting. Uh, It's fermentation season, baby. Get ready. I am uh, Marika. Oh my God, I almost (laughs) said Emily. (laughs) I'm Emily and I definitely know who I am. Wow. And Marika is doing a great job. I've had like a glass of cider and it's eight at night and I can't think. But anyway, today's episode is on sauerkraut, y'all. The krauts, as some might call them. I feel like that's racist, but to German people, I think we're fine. (laughs) The Germans are okay. They can handle a dig. So yeah, we're talking sauerkraut today. May I just briefly tell you what sauerkraut is just for anyone who's been uncertain about it? I mean, I feel like there's like some different dimensions. We also need to mention the distinct divide that's going to relate to our episode next. Yeah, next episode. Week. Yeah. Oh, next. I don't know. Next week. Whatever. <laughs> down to it. Okay. Just don't put all this pressure on us. Okay. Tell us about sauerkraut. What is okay. it? So sauerkraut is just finely cut raw cabbage ribbons, specifically not chunks, ribbons. I mean, that's just. It's fine. You could do cut. It's whatever. Do what you want. It's salted and then it's fermented in its own juices, which creates various lactic acid bacteria. So lactic acid is usually found in decomposing milk and plants, and it's responsible for that signature taste that you're going to get with uh, sauerkraut, but also for the smell and the texture as well. I think it's a textural food. Um, (laughs) So lactic acid bacteria are helpful in preventing the spoilage of food as well as being great for gut health. I think that's the thing. And I didn't really want to get into it this week, but like fermentation, it's all about that healthy guts, uh, which we all need. Oh, are you going to get fully into that? I mean, I'm going to get into it. I feel like this is the whole part of this series is that like every single episode we're going to be into like people think that this will like cure all of your diseases here's why it might here's why it probably won't but also like sometimes when you have a fermented thing you're like yeah this makes me feel so good so i can't argue with that kind of logic i mean yeah that's the thing placebo effect is real also like it's not bad for you so yeah why would you be mad at some cabbage um anyways 
The other thing about this is that sauerkraut has a really long shelf life. So beyond being really good for your digestion, it's a really great preservative to store in your pantries. Some might even call it a staple. <laughs> wow. Thank you. Who knew we would finally get there after yep. 13 episodes? Very exciting. Um, anyways, <laughs> but I think before we can even, or really, it you can't talk about sauerkraut. You kind of have to talk about cabbage. That's... Yeah. The thing. So yeah. where is cabbage from in the world? Where does this all originate? I don't so, even know. That's, I'm great. I'm glad that you don't. That's very helpful. Please never know anything so I can look smart. Um, <laughs> cabbage in the family of brassica vegetables, which include other vegetables like kale, Brussels sprouts. It's actually an enormous, like, it's actually a genus. Thank you. So there's tons of other stuff that are a part of this brassica situation. Um, the origins of brassica oleracea which we think is probably the ancestral plant of cabbage, like modern day, like the heads of cabbage that we see, uh, was domesticated. Apparently, again, all of this information, indeterminate, but it was probably domesticated around 1000 BCE in Western Europe, uh, which is really late for domestication when typically when we're talking, we're like, oh yeah, we're using fossil records. We're using all of this, blah, blah, blah. Nah. Yeah. Also, interesting thing that, like, we don't talk about enough is it's so easy to get um, fossil records for a lot of things like seeds and fruits. Like an avocado, you can totally find that because yeah. it's a large pit. Like, there's there's stuff that you can find in the ground. But vegetables, it's a lot harder, especially things like cabbage where they decompose really easily and really fully. Yeah, so, I mean, do they – do cabbages even have seeds? Yes. <laughs> but – Oh my god, I can't get into that. I'm sorry. I read like a full dissertation on like all the different things in this uh, genus and I can't do it. Like it was so complicated. And also I just don't really think you need to know about 18 different species. You just I, I don't. I can't. I you won't. don't want to. Nobody wants that. I don't. And I read the freaking dissertation. It was horrible. I'm sorry to whoever's dissertation. It was very well written. It was just, it's me, not you. Um. Anyways, so this was in Western Europe. Like I said, significantly later, the appearance of a cabbage head, like those very densely packed circular things yeah not really what we would have probably seen in this early domestication which makes sense things look different as they are changed obviously that's the most basic <laughs> sentence um it's more likely that they were kind of kale like plants without the heads uh there is also a theory that brassica oleracea as i said developed in the mediterranean so there's kind of these two opposing schools of thought on this this is based uh more on linguistic trends really there is always obviously genetic uh evidence for it but we're seeing a lot of mentions of cabbage in those mm -hmm. cultures in the mediterranean so it would make sense that they would obviously be there and be prominent that's not to say and i think so often we picture migration and like population movement in a very specific way because we've been taught that like okay first you had the egyptians and then you have the greeks and then the greeks went to rome and then the romans went to britain and then the britons yeah. went everywhere but that's not what was happening people were moving all over the dang place oh yeah all things throughout time mm -hmm. like it's it's complicated right so we can't for sure say one way or the other but we do have all these references to like cabbage like plants in like egypt and ancient roman greece so those are my favorites and you have to listen to them so there uh we see shout s-h-a-w apostrophe t in papyrus harris of the time of ramses the third 
ask me what time period that is because I remember to write it down this time. I would love to know. I mean, yeah, it means nothing to me. Please tell. It is 11,086 to 1155 BCE. So well, what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? It means that Ramses III was in charge. Uh, it means that we still have a pharaoh system. It's uh, what were we doing around that time? That is, God, don't anyone who's in the classics quote me on any of this or like come at me. But I think that the original thought was that 7th and 8th kind of century BCE was when the Odyssey and the Iliad were like being told in stories but the idea that the event that they were potentially based on or scare quotes i don't really know uh was around that time so like people have tools they know stuff they're doing things they have like fully formed religions they're like building pyramids stuff's happening scare quotes golden age of like egypt or is this kind of like early I mean, as a, no, I was going to say, as someone who loves Rome so much, I don't think they had a good day until they finally got some Romans in there. Uh, The Egyptian people would very heartily disagree with that. Yeah, it's before the Greeks came in and, like, took over that. It's, uh, yeah. So it's like, like, what is, it's like archetypal Egypt. Egypt. Yeah, archetypal Egypt. That's, thank you, that's very good. Um, Anyways. So this shot in the papyrus has been interpreted as cabbage. So in ancient Greece, we also have mentions of a cabbage plant, whatever that appeared as, by Theophrastus, who was around 371 to 287 BCE. So around then was, stuff was getting complicated in ancient Rome. Instead of just like a bunch of farmers and like going out on like raids and stuff, they were, they were making some progress. Again, and we also just have to remember like, what are these people talking about? Like they're writing about cabbage, obviously, and not like in a strictly like here I'm writing like in linear A and linear B on a tablet being like, we have this many cabbages on hand. They're like uh-huh. discussing it for its medicinal and like health benefits and that sort of stuff, right? Yeah. Chrysippus of Cnidos? Nidos? I don't know, man. Sorry. He's around 350 BCE. He wrote a treatise on cabbage, which Pliny knew of. None of the original work survived, but we just have the mentions of them in Pliny. Bless him. Uh, cabbage was thought by some to be a bit of a luxury item for the dinner table in ancient Rome, which I think is hilarious. There's some, like Lucilius, uh, who thought it was unfit for the upper class to consume. There's this kind of, like, reputation would be like a rustic hearty like homey food and we have cato the elder that praises it more of a traditionalist espousing a simple republican life even though he was like obviously the upper crust white man of his time uh (laughs) he this is so fucking good he ate his cabbage cooked or raw and dressed with vinegar so again something that has like this kind of acidic element like a little bit fermented blah 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 he said it surpassed all other vegetables and approvingly distinguished three varieties he also gave directions for its medicinal use which extended to the cabbage eater's urine in which infants might be rinsed no thank you yuck (laughs) yuck yuck but also can you imagine yes Yes, I can. <laughs> That's the thing. People were doing weird stuff with weird things in the time. Um, anyways. Now. St- oh, I was listening to this episode of a podcast where they're like, hey, don't eat your dog's flea medication or worm. Sorry, not flea, worm medication. It's not going to cure COVID. And I was like, what? What? So that's troubling. Uh, so at the end of antiquity, cabbage is mentioned in De Observatione Ciborum on the observance of foods by Anthemus, a Greek doctor at the court of 
Theodoric the Great, and cabbage appears among vegetables directed to be cultivated in Capitular de Viles, which was composed around 771 to 800 CE. That this was something that guided the governance of the royal estates of Charlemagne. So it's everywhere. It's it's doing its thing, you know? It's very important. Now, this is exclusively looking at it in, like, again, Western Europe versus the Mediterranean. Those aren't the only parts of the world. It is not indigenous to kind of the Americas in any way there. So we're not seeing that until it's brought over again after, you know, the colonizing of those areas. Uh, but we have the Silk Road and I think that this is a really interesting thing that I couldn't quite get to the bottom of in my research. And I think a lot of articles are very conflicting about this, which is quite cool, but also troubling, I guess. There's reports of around 14th to 17th century CE. That's when traders from like Portugal specifically brought cabbage along the Silk Road to Asia, specifically to India. And that's when we see it there. There's also someone who says that as late as 775, or sorry, 1775, there's no cabbage in Japan, which seems incredibly late and unlikely to me, but okay. No, but you couldn't get to Japan. Japan was like closed off for markets. Oh, that's right. Thank you. Okay. That makes me feel a lot better. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm like, the whole time I'm like, this is insane. What were they doing? No, Japan was like, uh, please, please. Stay away. Just ignore us. We're, we're good on our own. Thanks. Okay, yeah. yeah. Cut that out. Don't let me look <laughs> stupid here. Um. Anyways, but regardless, 14th to 16th century is when we're thinking that we started to import cabbage from Europe over to Asia on the Silk Roads. And then we have some other stuff that'll contract with that later, but let me just finish this brief history here. So then we have during the 16th century, German gardeners who developed the Savoy cabbage. In the 18th century, Europeans had cabbage as a stable crop. Uh, It was widely consumed. Because it could be pickled and it prevented scurvy, it was massively important in shipping. So any kind of, you know, seafaring country would definitely be producing a ton of this because it was keeping their sailors from dying oh yeah i i have i have a little bit on that later perfect i will leave it to you then that's that's good so this is where we see the importance of sauerkraut coming up right now sauerkraut didn't necessarily originate in germany this isn't a dish that's exclusively german nor is it a dish that's exclusively mediterranean or western european or any of those sorts of things a lot of articles that I read suggested that its origins were in China, which isn't kimchi because that's Korean. It's swan kai. Huh. That's what they call it. And it's a recipe that's basically the exact same. It's just chopped up as opposed to the shredded. But uh-huh. like even then, I don't think that really makes a difference at all. Uh, so that's what they're suggesting. Now, I've read multiple sources that say it appeared originally in like China, that's where it's from. It's not German. They brought it back over that way. This idea of sauerkraut. That seems insane. Like all of this seems very conflicting to me, right? (laughs) So we have the facts here. Oh, my last fact before I get into like the summation of this. It's thought that this type of fermented cabbage, the Swan Kai, was consumed by the workers who built the Great Wall of China. So that's 221 BCE. So way before that 14th to 16th century time period. Before they were even supposed to have cabbage, That's the thing. So it's like, one, it seems really weird that we're expecting 
Asia to have gotten this food as late as the 14th and 16th century. Like, I know that there was obviously things where that is when they were introduced, but typically we see that as being things that were found when we went over to the Americas and, you know, raped and pillaged and brought all that stuff back over. It doesn't seem like things that were freely growing and could be, like, picked and obviously traded earlier, so that's weird. It's weird that we have this idea of sauerkraut being so dominant of like a trend and that's what we think of when we think of this fermented cabbage but there's this whole other thing that doesn't get a lot of notice is that are just whitewashing of history I don't really know the whole thing is very peculiar but one thing that is kind of interesting is that all the places where sauerkraut is like traditionally very like easy to find like especially now or like where there's dishes that are like similar to this are places that are along the same kind of latitude Mm. because things grow like the same right yeah so you have china which is the same latitude kind of along there so it makes sense and i think that it's like the most that i can make sense of this and the most that i feel comfortable attributing it is is that this was independently thought about like you have this food it's kind of going around there's so many different kinds of this brassica that are all sort of different like sort of similar like it's all being cultivated developed domesticated at the same time i kind of just think that all of these places were just like god we got to keep some of this good stuff for the winter like there we go and yeah. that's how sauerkraut came about well and i i mean i know that i've read so many things just like cursory that i'm not like really going to talk about but mm. it's just like what like people are making sauerkraut and it's like not necessarily just cabbage like it's kind of just like anything and they're pickling it in the same method exactly. so it's like even if they didn't have like what we're considering like an a priori cabbage Mm -hmm. in china like maybe they had yeah some other kind of brassica and it's like they've got salt exactly and just like letting the like juices build like come out and turning it it's i think it's the lactic acid bacteria that's the real like thing and it's any kind of plant right like if you were gonna pickle anything it comes out i think and, like, structurally, as long as the thing is quite similar. Because cabbage does have, like, a very specific texture and structure to it that holds up really nicely in pickling. Yeah. So that makes yeah. sense. So I think, yeah, anything kind of like that. Well, yeah. that's very fascinating. I and just like the idea that we cannot possibly trace this to one spot. Yes. And for any listeners who are screaming at us about, like, why the heck are we not talking about kimchi? That's next episode, peeps. So Calm there. Down. Yeah. Okay, so as I was telling you before, but now I will mm. tell the listeners, my uh, research is a bit all over the place. Fine. <laughs> because sauerkraut is kind of just sauerkraut. I've actually, okay, this is so bad as a, I'm a very bad German for this. I've never had sauerkraut. Are you freaking kidding me right now? Like, no. even not in preparation for this? No, I didn't want to go out and get it. It looks yucky. You've never once had sauerkraut. I like cabbage, like, a lot. But no, I've never had sauerkraut. I was actually thinking as I was like doing my reading and stuff, I was like, maybe I should make some of my own. See how that goes. Describe my face right now. <laughs> Shocked and appalled would be the expression. Uh, I know. I'm sorry. Again, I mean, bad German. Do whatever you want. Oh, you know what? No, I'm sure now that I've, you know what? Edit that out. I'm sure I've had it. We went to Germany. I ate like the huge pork knuckle. I'm sure there was sauerkraut on the plate. How yeah. would I have missed it? Yeah, yeah, no. Oh, clearly it didn't make very much of an impact, though. I mean, it's like... I was reading It's a pretty basic food. Where everyone was like, hey, sauerkraut's actually delicious, but, like, 95% of people make it really bland and disgusting because they overcook it when they're, like, heating it up. So if you used to take just, like, jars of sauerkraut to school for lunch and we're like, who are you? No. Yeah, it was real cute. But so hilarious. 
That's horrifying. I'm I'm shocked and appalled in return. I mean, did your mother not say something like, "Hey, do you want like some bread with that?" I mean, I feel like bread was involved, but Sophie's just like, "Yeah, I just want sauerkraut." I mean, do you, girl? Meanwhile, I was making condiment sandwiches between rice cakes, so. That's, you know what, here's the thing, I feel like, again, on a side note, I do not like lunch as a meal. I think it's a terrible meal. I've hated it forever. I hated all of my lunches at school every single day. The only way to like lunch is if you, like, go out for lunch and have a proper, like, dinner meal. But yeah, and drinks. Yeah, and drinks, obviously. Why would you be sober for a day or a meal? <laughs> Anyways. Um, speaking of sober, want to talk about the Pennsylvania Dutch? Yes, I do. Please tell me all about these folk. Are they sober? I actually feel like I... Aren't they? I feel like the only thing that I know about Pennsylvania Dutch is that they're not actually Dutch. They're German. Yeah. I feel like that was, like, a fun, like, side, like, I don't know. Yeah, it's Deutsch, not Dutch. Ah, the Pennsylvania Deutsch. Which made it extremely frustrating when I was reading this article about them. And then the person kept saying, it was like, oh, yes, like, if you're a Dutchman. I was like, but you're not. Do you think they knew or were they just, like, fucking it up? No, I think the author was a Dutchman. (laughs) Jeez. Troubling. Anyway, Pennsylvania Dutch were called sauerkraut Yankees. (laughs) Oh, that's good. Which is actually a super hilarious, I mean, derogatory term (laughs) (laughs) um, coined by Confederate soldiers during the Civil War to distinguish the, like, the Pennsylvania Dutch who ate sauerkraut from just, like, other, like, New Englanders. Were they pro or con New England? Or were they pro or con the Pennsylvania Dutch? I don't understand what's... Why did they need to distinguish them? I don't know enough about the Civil War in America. Not that I really care. We're in one, it's fine. Yeah. Don't mention the war. (laughs) But basically, this was like, the Pennsylvania Dutch were extremely offended because they were like, how dare you call us Yankees? We are Pennsylvania Dutch, bitch. (laughs) That's very funny. But then the author of this uh, book, but then this specific chapter, which the book is called As American as Shoe Fly Pie. So I read the title of this and have not had a chance to read it. So I'm very glad you're telling me about this. I mean, I don't know if you need to. Again, mm-hmm. I've only got like one more thing. But basically the author is like hilarious that this is so like offensive, but it's also like extremely true because sauerkraut is the central thing to Pennsylvania Dutch cooking. Mm-hmm. The thing that was interesting for the author of this article was they were like, I've done all of this research on like old recipes and I never saw a recipe for sauerkraut. And then they were like, oh, but then I thought about it. And it's because everyone already knows how to make sauerkraut. Why would you write a recipe oh, for it? Yeah, I love that. When you're like, why is this huge piece of culture that we assume should be there not there? Oh, yeah, it's just because we didn't need to talk about it. Yeah, it's like, why would I write it down? Everyone knows. I've like made this since I was a child. Also, a very interesting thing that apparently for these Pennsylvania Dutch, the making refer of sauerkraut. the sauerkraut Yankees while you're talking about for- this. Just for continuity's sake. <laughs> Um, in my notes, it's Penn Dutt for the sauerkraut Yankees. The scent, the making of sauerkraut is actually like a male activity. Like the men are the one who make the sauerkraut, whereas the women are the one who do like recipe following and cooking. Interesting. Yeah. And then apparently like the reason they also wouldn't write them down, like let alone because you already know it, is because your recipe would de- like vary depending on whatever type of cabbage you had on hand, the time of the year. Hmm. whatever like other like salts and things yeah it makes sense just like a 
throw it all in the pot kind of situation. Yeah, interesting. I wonder why it's the men that are making this and not the women. I'm very confused about that. Because that just seems like, again, again, I don't really know anything about the Amish, but what I've assumed is that they're all, or like women in the kitchen making things, men are out chopping wood or doing that sort of stuff. I don't know what men do. They Clearly, I have no fucking clue. I also, yeah, I mean, I think that the reason it's the men is because they're like more related to the actual farming of the cabbage. So it's like, oh, interesting. it's yeah. like you farm it and then you just like immediately like mm. chop it up and put it in a big dutch oven oh get out that was bad <laughs> it's true that's what no, it's... I know. that was really good um i also feel like just for our listeners sake i'm like 90 percent sure that like yes the amish are pennsylvania dutch but not all pennsylvania dutch are amish ah uh, like it's one of those kind of things yeah okay but speaking of germans and not dutch people yeah the deutsch <laughs> the deutsch i also read an article that has nothing to do with sauerkraut except tangentially, but about mm. German restaurants in America post World War One. I. I would love to hear about that, and I think that that's very related to sauerkraut because they best be serving it. Of course they were. They're serving the sauerkraut. They've got like the little like pig knuckles and oh, so gross. <sighs> but and I mean, like you know, I like me some pig. I only have the research for World War One because a. That was all that I actually directly looked into. And then also, I feel like like nothing else with for World War II came up. But I feel like that's an interesting indictment on, like, North American sentiments to German people. Like, I feel like the it, there was a lot more anti-German sentiment for World War One, whereas in World War Two that... They didn't take focus in the same way which is so interesting and again maybe this isn't incorrect maybe i just wasn't alive at the time so i don't know but i feel like everyone was way more pissed with either the italians or most definitely the japanese definitely the japanese yeah 100 percent them i mean and maybe that's because we did more atrocious things directly to the japanese like people or people of japanese descent who were living in yeah that was rough yeah, um, look that up if you want a bad time. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, not funny. Oh, I mean, but you should. It's important to know our history. And how, like, ex- like, explicitly racist we are, where it's, like... It's also very interesting to note that, like, in, like, around the time of World War One, like, late 19th century and then to early 20th century, we didn't consider, like, German people... As like white? I mean, I don't know if that's true, but it's like there was a whole like weird like racism. And now I'm just going to be putting foot in my mouth, but. No, but it's so interesting here because that is like obviously not related to anything we're talking about, but just the idea that like white used to be, it wasn't quite as like homogenous. Yeah, exactly. Very like divided. Uh, Like everyone had beef with the Irish, which why? They had a lot of potatoes. I would be very Catholics, which is insane because they're, anyway. Mm, whole other thing we're getting anyway all of this to say this is an article that i read that was all like there was anti-german sentiment in america post-world war one but also there wasn't and here are some examples (laughs) (laughs) um so this article was specifically focused on a handful of german restaurants in san francisco that were navigating anti-german sentiment yes during and after world war one in the U.S. in the early 20th century, many German in- immigrants worked in the hospitality industry. So it's mm. like we've got bakeries, we've got breweries, butcher shops, and restaurants, all of which provided an outlet to foster their native language and culture. Cute. Which, like, makes sense. Like, why would you 
you know, you're immigrating there, or maybe it's like your parents moved there mm-hmm. and opened up a bakery. Like you're going to do what you know. Which like, we're all still like low key doing a little bit, but anyways. Yeah. Thousand percent. Yeah. Uh, in San Francisco specifically, there was an influx of German restaurants and brew halls when after the 1906 earthquake, uh, mm-hmm. a huge part of the city was destroyed, including a number of breweries. So it was like open season. They're like, oh yeah, we got some space over here. We can throw you in. Well, yeah. So it was like breweries cool. in that time were mostly owned by German expats because that's like yeah. beer. Like if you think about all of like the main like sort beer of like, producing regions. Or no, but just like big, like American brand beers, like Pabst, yeah, Budweiser, like that's yeah. all German. Um, so a lot of these like big breweries moved down from Oregon to fill the demand for beer in San Francisco. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Oh, I didn't really realize Oregon was so involved. Anyways, I don't really know where I thought this was centered, but Oregon's always had breweries. I didn't really think that they would have like the big. Well, I guess they weren't the big ones at the time, maybe? I mean, I don't know. I'm just, this is a quote. No, I mean, that's not, like, not a quote, but it's like, yeah, that was a thing. Mm. Um, so there were German restaurants like the Hofbrau Cafe, Ooh. which opened in 1912. And it relied heavily on a romantic, imagined ideal of Bavarian life with Ooh. a mix of the cosmopolitan. Because, of I course. I love that. Yeah, so reading about it reminded me a lot of our discussion of Thai restaurants. Mm. Like, and, you know, these kind of German restaurants in the, like, 1910s were doing a lot of the same things. Where it's, like... Straddling that line between, like, very, like, domestic and painting this picture while also making it cool to do that. Yeah, it's like you're really playing up this idea of, like, ooh, let's go somewhere exotic. And it's just like, ooh, it's German. Like, the whole interior is designed like a Munich brew hall. (laughs) Which, like, I don't know what that means. Also, on a side note, how are we still doing that with Greek restaurants? We're doing it with all ethnic restaurants. Yeah, no, of course. Like, like, literally go into any restaurant that is, like... A specific culture's food? Yeah. Even even white people food? The style of white people food is a cactus club. And that's that's an imagined, idealized version of totally white cosmopolitan. Like it's ah! the cactus aesthetic. Somebody coin this for me, please. Oh my goodness! Did I just make this up? I'm a genius. Uh, yeah, no, no. My like thoughts. Of, I mean, obviously, we're doing it for everyone, but like that very specific Greek restaurant aesthetic mm. it chaps my hide. Yeah, and I feel like the Greek restaurant in like I want to say the 80s and 90s is exactly what the German restaurants were doing. In these, like, 1900s. You don't see a lot of German restaurants around these days, hey? You don't. But when you do, they're doing also the exact same thing. Yeah, it's totally. like, you've got, like, boar heads on the wall and, like, beer steins. And yeah, <laughs> maybe the staff were dressed, dressed in heck and lederhosen. Like, Oof, a dirndl. Yeah, love that oh, for us. Dirndls. But then the Hofbrau was also specifically doing things where, like, it had a whole, like, section of booths that were named after, like, states in america so it's like they're really trying to like mix and this was even before they knew that they should be concerned about being german (laughs) i mean i guess they always knew they they could sense it coming interesting also like looking at the menu so it's like Mm. there are items that are like fully like listed in german but then they've also got like sides of asparagus and then you've got goulash which is hungarian Mm -hmm. as well as spatzla and like steak and then also this the like specialty of the Hofbrau was Pacific abalone. No, oh, weird. 
I know. So it's like, they're already kind of doing that, like, mix of things. Ugh, fusion. Uh, the... <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Here's the thing. It's always and has... It's never not been fusion. It's always fusion. Everything is fusion. Yes, yes. Insert the sound that goes within our authenticity conversation right here. Just play the entire thing. <laughs> Anyways. Game song. Uh, so the Hofbrau changed its name to the State's Restaurant in 1918 for quote patriotic reasons that's like in vancouver during the canucks uh when they were in the like finals for the stanley cup and all the boston pizzas became vancouver pizzas i got such a kick out of that it was literally in my notes of like this totally reminds me of that yeah like oh that's hilarious i mean the stakes were slightly less high in world war one but uh you know i can see where they went with it I mean, there literally was a riot in Vancouver. Mm, R.I.P. Were you there for that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I got out pretty quick. Same. But, yeah. like, you could see shit a brewing. Yeah. And, Return. like, I had, like, like, high school classmates who were, like, arrested for throwing Molotov cocktails. <laughs> Did you really? Oh, that's wild. Yeah. Or maybe not arrested, but, like, fined. I don't know. I mean, you're very white. I don't think they were arrested. <laughs> So the small change of like the name, along with forcing all of the staff to speak only English and Aww. buying war bonds, uh, it actually seemed to work in kind of assuaging any Germanophobic reactions. Uh, it's also very funny that like that seemed to work because apparently the ba- the band that they had like still played German songs. And German songs one- are catchy as heck. Why wouldn't that still be okay? Yeah, I mean, like, that's fine. But there was also, like, one noted incident where there was almost a riot because a bunch of sailors, like, asked them to play uh, the American patriotic anthem over there. Oh. And then the band leader was like, no. (gasps) Really? But then he was like, no, no, the only reason we wouldn't do it is because we don't have the rights. That's so funny. It's pretty smart. Yeah. So another example is Schroeder's. Schroeder's. Yeah, I don't know how to say it. Neither do I. They also worked really hard to drive home the idea of a distinct German style restaurant. Hmm. So they did the classic like beer steins of Germany. And they also had uh, like murals painted depicting supposed German life, like drinking beer and I don't know, eating sausages. Eating pretzels, I was going to say. Pretzels. I love a soft pretzel with mustard. It's delicious. But I feel like this whole mural thing is still like very much. Like I know. What's that place in Vancouver that you can go to that's like very German? You know what I'm talking about though, right? I've definitely been there. The Bavarian Hall? Yeah, probably that. So yeah, so much like the Hofbrau. uh, And like we're saying, all of these types of ethnic restaurants the germanness of schroeder's is an idealization of germany mm-hmm. deeply deeply rooted in the past so it's the germany of sauerkraut and beer steins which didn't really exist in the 1930s mm-hmm. definitely not in like america but also not in germany like germany was a super changing place at that time yeah i mean <laughs> a lot of other problems happened for trying to look were, at the past in they were doing a lot at that time they had a lot on the go but yeah, I mean, and that's that's always the way it is. Like, yeah. we've talked about this every single time we bring every up some time. kind of like ethnic. Like, you're always trying to get to this past that it's it's, it's not fair anymore. 
No. Uh, so yeah. So, but in America, this fake or straight up a a historicism worked to mitigate any anti-German sentiment because non-German patrons didn't associate it with the recent negativity surrounding Germany. Oh, that's so interesting. Right? Like it, because it's a sound of music kind of vibe. It's so sound of music, except world war one. Yeah. (laughs) Julie Andrews, she can get it. Totally. Hmm. Liesl, you deserve better than Kurt. (laughs) Is that his name? I think so. I was going to say Rolf. Oh, is it? Nah. Nah, I don't know. Who cares? It's something like that. Doesn't matter. He's an asshole. Exactly. And a Nazi. <laughs> so how about another fun topic, which is food insecurity? Ooh, hate that. And also more specifically, speaking of Nazis and assholes, oh. uh, the Trump government. <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> if you didn't know, now you do. Yep. Uh So despite what many government assistance programs, especially in the U.S., because that's where all the research is. Why do you think that is, that all the research about food insecurity is in the U.S.? Is it because they're a developed country that has some pretty shit social systems? We're just like, anyway. Yeah, also also they're writing in English. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, fair enough. (laughs) But yes, of all the English-speaking countries, I'd say they're doing a shit job. Anyway, I so, lifted your headphone away from your ear for that sound. Thanks. No, for that, that was just timing. That's just because my ears <laughs> happen to be sore. <laughs> so, despite what many government assistant programs in the U.S. seem to think, uh, a lot of people facing food insecurity are actually not only capable of making quote unquote good choices, but feel empowered by the variability to choose. Because mm-hmm. of course. You do it. It's like if you're poor or even like, you know, down on your luck, what, like, if, if all that you have is the ability to choose like good food for your family or at least choose the food that your family eats, like, of course, that's going to be like massively significant to you. Yes. However, and like the idea that all people don't want to eat good, healthy food is like insane. Who thinks that people just want to eat crappy food? They don't. Nobody does. The only people who want to eat crappy food are rich people who have the luxury to eat crappy food. Yeah. Hashtag Chrissy Teigen loving Taco Bell and me loving Subway. Me and Chrissy, we are the same. Subway was considered diet food up until like five minutes ago. (laughs) Oh my god, Jared, throwback. So dark. (laughs) Anyway. Oh no, no. We've mentioned Hitler and Nazis and pedophiles. Like, there's a lot going on today. We're starting this off with a bang. Um, so in 2018, the uh, Trump administration proposed America's Harvest Box, a program that would replace the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, a.k.a. SNAP, a.k.a. Food Stamps, mm-hmm. uh, which is a thing that is loaded onto a special card that allows food insecure individuals uh, to shop just like at most grocery stores. So you can use it. And like like nice and discreet too. Yeah, I think so. And it gives you choice, which is important. Yep. Uh, So this new system would cut the government cost apparently in half and deliver a box of entirely American, entirely processed food to those formerly receiving SNAP. Entirely processed, hey? So like just all canned and like, Ooh, rough. Yes. So the whole idea was that it would be based off of like taking 
uh, surplus from mm-hmm. American food industries and like just getting it at a discount. Ooh, I got so many things to say. Mm. A lot of people had so many things to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, the government, the people proposing the bill, the USDA, had the audacity to suggest that this would encourage healthy eating habits. How? Walk me through that argument, would you? It's literally, it's just the paternalistic thing where it's like, yeah, all of these other people, like when they're getting their food stamps, like they're just buying like, I don't know, chips and candies. But this is going to provide them with vegetables. Canned and heavily salted and processed vegetables? Or your salmonella lettuce that you enjoy so much over there? Oh my goodness. Not even salmonella lettuce. No lettuce is involved in the making of this harvest box. Also, like, the whole conversation of why is, like, good food so expensive and bad food is so... Anyways, whatever. It's fine. Also, the fact that, like, having massive, like, food corporations is super detrimental and, like, where we think that having these massive, like, create, like, fulfillment centers of food is going to eliminate food insecurity it's actually totally what's driving it and what we really need is a good network of like peasant and farmer like people just like doing their thing and that's how we can feed the whole world and it's absurd that anyone's hungry in 2021 oh also just like i don't know tax the rich eat the rich (laughs) put them in the boxes i've solved it okay perfect also going back to this of course let alone just like the other like complete like absurdity of the fact that this is a not only completely insulting but also like completely infeasible idea (laughs) insulting and infeasible i feel like those are the taglines of the trump administration (laughs) amongst others but anyway the system would also come with uh stricter eligibility requirements like Mm -hmm. having to commit to like a certain work like quota like Cause you have to have a job to be on them, which is also extremely fucked up because like, apparently like anyone who works for a large corporation like Walmart is not getting paid fairly. So most of the people who work for Walmart are also on food stamps to buy the fucking food. <laughs> <of Walmart. laughs> what a horrible time. Episode one. I'm screaming. Got a lot of feelings over here. Yes. There was also literally no defined plan on how to even get the food to the people. And it was not incorporated into the budget that was supposedly like half. (laughs) (laughs) That's so horrible. It's like, we're going to do this whole thing. We're going to deliver it to you. We're going to be half. No, we haven't factored the cost of how we're actually going to get it to you, but it's going to be a bunch of shitty cans. So the harvest boxed, was like immediately like screamed at in all of the in everything by people who knew a fucking ounce of anything uh and it but it kept being proposed and rejected until this past april really where it seems like a like revamped version got approved oh so now we have the farmers to families food box program wow an alliteration Oh my. Yeah. So according to the, according to, I don't know, a website article called Successful Farming. (laughs) I've got some questions, but anyway, Mm -hmm. apparently the USDA was set to award contracts for the purchase of $300 million worth of fresh fruits and vegetables, meats and dairy products monthly. Hmm. I'm sorry, but (laughs) do any of those things last a month? Yeah, that's... 
Yeah. Um, and I actually, okay, so like I found that note and then I also found, okay, so here's like a bit of a list of what seems like it's going to be in them. Oh, interesting. I'm very intrigued. Uh, and it seems like you have to like order the boxes differently, which is weird. So it's like you could get the fresh fruit and fresh vegetable box, which may include mixed bags of vegetables, i.e. potatoes, onions, carrots, a mixed bag of fruit, apples, pears, oranges, blueberries, strawberries, tomatoes, and sweet potatoes. Okay. I get the sense that that might be frozen, but it does say fresh. So I don't know. Well, Wendy's has told us many a thing that fresh is not frozen, but they're very similar at times. Um, that's really interesting because, again, sauerkraut, the main thing about this is that it's such a good preserve and this is how we're kind of on it. So it's supposed mm-hmm. to eliminate food insecurities. This box is supposed to eliminate food insecurities for people. But you can't do that with fresh produce. Like, that's why we've developed these techniques. And that's why having, like, consistent access every week to new fresh fruit is better that's what idiot did this uh sunny purdue of the usda sunny we gotta talk i also just feel like i need to read the 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 meat box which includes pre-cooked meats of pork and chicken so it's pre-cooked pre-cooked chicken nuggets (gasps) pre-cooked bacon pre-cooked pork patties Pork or chicken taco filling. Wow. Eh. It just makes me so sad. Yeah, it's heckin' depressing. So, yeah, basically, this is all just a dumping ground for the surplus from the agricultural industry. I have a fantastic quote from a professor of food studies, nutrition, public health, a woman named Marion Nessel. Mm. And she says, quote, dietary guidelines necessarily are political compromises between what science tells us about nutrition Mm -hmm. and health and what is good for the food industry. So, Mm. yes, sauerkraut, something that initially came out of uh, food insecurities, trying to preserve what you've got on your farm, trying to make things nice. And now we've got pre-cooked chicken nuggets and... I don't know. Dehydrated milk. It's just so interesting, too, that, like, just the way that we procure food on a day-to-day basis is so different than it ever used to be because we have all these technology advances. And, like, I, for one, love the effect that I could get a fresh mango any day of the week uh, and also hate it on many levels. But it's just so interesting that these, like, really integral processes are like being lost like i don't think a ton of people are canning and preserving and like fermenting things like they are there's fermentation all over the dang place but like it's not nearly as popular as it ever used to be because everybody's just eating their chicken nuggets i mean i did also i skimmed an article about canning in like the american Mm. south but i i didn't really pay attention to the date Mm. Uh, but apparently like a lot of the reason that they were doing canning was because like they literally didn't have refrigerators or free or no they didn't have freezers Hmm. sorry so like a lot of the quotes were like yeah like i would love to freeze these peaches but like i don't have a freezer so i'm gonna can them 
No, I don't think, yeah, I shouldn't say canning. My issue isn't so much with, like, that sort of stuff because that's still decently, like, it's taking something and trying to save it. Like, you can can in the same way as you would jar something, kind of. Not obviously the same, but, you know, you're doing your thing. I just mean, like, completely transforming it through chemical processing into something that just lasts forever. I think that living in urban centers, we forget just how, like, as soon as you get rural, the the availability of so many different like types of foods just plummets it's crazy like i mean obviously we don't really know any other lifestyle than what we have but things i think the big shocking one for canadians especially is always uh like if you go to what is it like the yukon or northwest territories it costs like 50 dollars to get an apple to you or something like that just because where would you get an apple at that time of year everything's being shipped in from big urban centers that are then getting those things shipped in from like different countries where it's warm enough or from like greenhouses that they have set up just the sheer like the incredible toll that the food system that we have designed like not we but you know the royal we uh has designed takes on the environment and like on humankind as well is so baffling absolutely and like how politicized just going to the grocery store and buying something is like that's such it's like you said it's something that people should just be able to choose for themselves and like that like a like a fundamental like right to choose what you want to consume and yet there you go yeah okay so like my next little bit and the part that I did the most research on (laughs) uh is sauerkraut and dot 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 nutrition question mark thank you for the punctuation that's very helpful you're welcome (laughs) basically I read this one article that was a synthesis of interviews with anti-vaxxers. Very <gasps> topical. Very topical. Ooh, you were really hitting all the notes today. Mm. And one of the number one themes from all of these interviews, like a lot of, like most of that article didn't really have anything to do with like mm. what we're talking about, but it was just interesting. But a, like a big theme was a belief that diet was the most important part of a healthy lifestyle, which I don't necessarily disagree with, but in this instance, it was very much like a, we're gluten-free and feed our kids sauerkraut and bone broth so they can't possibly get the measles kind of a way. Yeah. It's also super rough, this like article, because when you are like directly quoting someone from an interview in this way, there is so many ums and repetitions and it just makes people sound so dumb like if anyone was going to write a transcript even when i'm editing this podcast i was like wow marika you just said like fifty thousand times yeah like everyone sounds stupid when they're talking because we're not professional orators but will sauerkraut save you from measles probably not but let's talk about the supposed health benefits and what have you of sauerkraut and fermented foods in general which is of course a topic that we're going to go back to all throughout this season so we have Mm -hmm. the idea of good germs because obviously bacteria is involved in fermentation as you mentioned before with like scurvy brining Mm -hmm. preserves vitamin c in cabbage better than any other form of preparation so it's like really there's yeah like there's naturally vitamin c in a lot of vegetables and a lot of everything So if you're like just eating like a raw cabbage or you're eating cooked cabbage, Mm -hmm. you're actually going to be getting less vitamin C than if you're having it uh, like brined or in sour. That's wild. 
Yeah, because there's just something about like the way that the. Uh, I mean, there was a lot like of the process of fermentation. Blah, yeah, blah, blah. like the lactic acid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it just like brings it out and stabilizes the vitamin C, so you can get it. Because vitamin C is like not a very stable, like vitamin. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Like I know, like in terms of skincare. <laughs> yeah, it's not. So in terms of the scurvy thing, so you've got the terms kraut or limey, which <laughs> kind of like the different ways that sailing nations would prevent scurvy. So yeah, like the reason we call German people krauts is because German sailors ate sauerkraut. And the reason that Brits are called li- like limey is because <laughs> they had limes. I love that. That's very fun. That is true. So yes, you will get more vitamin C from eating sauerkraut. But then that gets extrapolated into the idea of gut health. Yes, the gut health. A lot of people believe that consuming the lactofermentive bacteria in fermented foods like sauerkraut will stimulate your autoimmune response, suppress pathogens, and synthesize additional nutrients in other foods. So just to clarify again here, that means they think that by eating sauerkraut, your gut is then going to make other foods better. Yes. It's a whole, so the whole thing with gut health mm-hmm. and like, I mean, I don't really know a lot about it. And the the whole thing with it is like, it's not proven. And it's no. this one article that I read, which was really good, which I didn't write down the name of. Good germs will save us or something. But anyway, the guy's basically saying it's like, we don't know this is right. We don't know it's wrong. It's essentially impossible to prove because in order to like do an actual study, we would need to have like, like you can't do a double blind study because mm-hmm. people can't not know that they're eating sauerkraut mm-hmm. and you'd have to do it for like 10 years and you would have to have people eating like placebo sauerkraut, which doesn't exist. <laughs> What would you give them instead of... Oh, that's so interesting. You can't do it. And it's like... And you can't do it with, like, cabbage oil. You can't do it... Because nothing else is the same. But yeah, so it's like, yes, we can see all of these things that, like, cabbage and, like, fermented cabbage has a lot of really good, like, healthy things. There's all of these different... Like, the Mm lacto-fermented bacterias do have... Like genuinely positive effects on your health. As with all wellness culture things, it like eventually gets to be like, this thing is actually going to fight cancer. And it's just like, sure. (laughs) But like all we've actually proven is that it boosts vitamin C. But then again, even that is like barely a big deal because it's basically impossible to be vitamin C deficient. Unless you have scurvy. But like you're just like eating crap on the road. No, you can't get scurvy. Like no, like the article was even like, you what? would probably still get enough vitamin C, even if you only ate junk food. So how did these sailors get vitamin C? Or sorry, how did they get scurvy? Like, I don't understand. They were like just drinking beer and eating bread. Like, I don't know. <laughs> so but now we it is- can still get it. Yeah, I mean, you could, but it's like you never hear about anyone. Like, you no. people don't get scurvy now. It's impossible. And you That's don't need wild. that much vitamin C. Huh. Again, potassium. That's the one we potassium. need. So lactobacillus, which is the yeah. lactobacteria, yeah. it produces uh, bacteriosins, hmm. which are toxins that kill off competing bacteria, which is why it works for fer- fermentation. Oh, okay. Yep. 
Yeah. So it's basically like it suppresses the bacteria that you don't want and that mm-hmm. can make you sick or make the sauerkraut taste bad. And it promotes the like more lactobacillus that break down the cabbage in the right way and like eat the carbohydrates and yeah. Is then the extension of this that then people think that this will destroy bad bacteria that's in their gut? Like that's how they've extended yes. the argument. Oh yeah, yeah. Correct. Thanks. But that's not how it works. Like, and no. even in making sauerkraut, like lactobacillus won't necessarily kill off every single bacteria. Like you could still get bacteria that like you don't expect. And that's not necessarily like harmful, but it just like makes a weird smell or makes it like a bit slimier. And you're like, oh, I didn't actually want this. Yeah. But just again, like the inconsistencies of dealing with like a naturally occurring thing. Yeah. And it's like wild yeast for like alcohol production and that sort of stuff. Well, yeah. And it's also like entirely possible that the natural or like accidental ecology of our intestines, Mm -hmm. like they don't need to and probably shouldn't be hacked. Like even if there's something that maybe isn't good for us. like It's like douching. (laughs) Yes. We don't need to hack our gut health and we don't need to be douching our vaginas. So there you go. Yeah. It's just like, I don't know. Like, eat stuff that's good, but don't, like, wreck it. It's also extremely important to remember that part of the problem with, like, just supplements in general and, like, Mm -hmm. even vitamins is that our bodies don't actually absorb more nutrients than they are already naturally meant to. Oh, that's interesting. So it's like once the quotas are filled, any excess basically just gets peed out. So it's like that's another thing with vitamin C. It's like you could be taking vitamin C all the heck in day long. But it's not going to do shit if you've already had an orange that day. That's so interesting. That feels like the entire vitamin C industry has really gone to town on you, marketing-wise. It's so fake. Fake food news. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Good to know. Yes. So, I don't know. Like, the article made a very smart point that we basically just like tend to jump to conclusions when it comes to nutrition and health, partly because that's just how humans are, but then partially because like big pharma and Mm. agribusinesses want us to make big assumptions. That's the thing is like, you have to remember like you are being sold your food. It's not you buying it. You are being sold. Like we want to assume that if something is, not bad for us then it must be very good for us so it's like you assume that an indicator like low cholesterol which is generally associated with healthy people like healthy people have low cholesterol Mm -hmm. but then we make the leap that lowering our cholesterol will automatically make us healthy and therefore live longer where it's like like low cholesterol doesn't mean you're healthy healthy people just have low cholesterol it's the same like it's the Pennsylvania Dutch Amish debate again and again. <laughs> it is so no, fucking true. And just again, like everyone just looking for some sort of miracle answer. And like, I get why that's so attractive. Like if your tummy hurts all the time, it makes sense to like want to try something and want to find an answer in something. And hell, maybe, I don't know, maybe it does work. Like my mom drinks a ton. Like, we were going to get through a whole episode without me referencing my mom. Sorry, Elsie. No, nah, we were going to talk about you last I'm just obsessed with her. It's fine. She's Um, great. She drinks her kombucha and she feels better because of it. And like, maybe it is doing something good. I don't really know what kombucha does. We'll get to that in another episode, but that's a Mm. whole other thing. Uh, But like, 
why wouldn't you do something that makes you feel good, but also don't put all your eggs in that basket? Well, absolutely. And like, that's kind of the moral of this. It's like, we can scream about the fact that it's like, the science doesn't prove it, but the science doesn't also not prove it. And even the, and even the author of this article, which was great, highly recommend, you know, it's like, yeah, there's 5,000 plus years of like folk wisdom saying that fermented foods are healthy. Like, little German grandmas making sauerkraut, like little Korean grandmas making kimchi, people eating all kinds of like fermented, fermented foods. Products. Yeah. It tastes good. It's not bad for you. So like, mm. but yeah, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Sauerkraut's probably not going to like, I don't know, cure cancer, cure, cure COVID. Cancer. <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't eat any of the, don't eat anything to cure COVID. That seems insane. You won't be able to taste anyway. What's the point? Hey I don't know. That's kind of all I got. Just like sauerkraut's nice. Put some salt and some cabbage in a bowl. Give it a massage. And then, I don't know, two weeks? Yeah, two weeks. Make sure you're sterilizing your jars, though. Oh, yes. No botulism 2021. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that's another one we're going to come back to. (laughs) Yeah. The botulism is going to be real, real bad. Um, Well, we've really hit all the major things that we like to hit here. We've discussed war. We've discussed mm-hmm. cultural authenticity. We've discussed our hatred for American political systems. I got to talk about the Romans and the Egyptians today, so that was pretty neat. I got I got fired up. Yeah, I got real fired up. I've cursed like a sailor. We actually got to talk about sailors. I was better today than I usually am, actually. I'm doing great. You're pretty good. Thank Maybe you. we should do a thing where it's like, you gotta go eat a, like, suck a lime every time you swear, so you oh. don't get scurvy. <laughs> I prefer lime lemons. Ugh, I can't get into that conversation. It's too it's too nuanced. I can't. You want my full thoughts on citrus. That'll be a Patreon episode. Pay us for those thoughts. Also, my thoughts on water. Those are many. If you would like us to have a Patreon in which we talk about water and citrus, uh, please leave a nice comment. Rate, review, on... subscribe. Tell your friends. You know what? Tell your foes. Make every single person you know that doesn't listen to it listen to one episode because yeah grab your friend's phone and subscribe them that's a classic last podcast on the left tip (laughs) as emily kind of scrambled in there rate review subscribe we are on apple podcasts and spotify which you already know you're already listening to us so yeah tell other people to listen in other places yes our instagram is pantry staples pod you can follow us there and, uh, also, you know what would be nice is if you could submit some cool food pics so that I could, like, look at them because I'd be into that. Or, like, some fun recipes you've made. Or how your bread making is going because we're still in a pandemic and I would like to get back to the stage in the pandemic where all we do is deal with, like, sourdough starters. Oh, actually, speaking of, I need to go feed my sourdough starter. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, we should get going then so that you can do that. Okay. Well, we love you all very much. Goodbye. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye.